Chapter 4 of Armageddon 2419 A.D. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malcolm Cameron. Armageddon 2419 by Philip Francis Nowlin. Chapter 4. A Han Air Raid. There was a girl in Wilma's camp named Gertie Mann with whom Bill Hearn was desperately in love. And the four of us used to go around a lot together. Gertie was a distinct type. Whereas Wilma had the usual dark brown hair and hazel eyes that marked nearly every member of the community, Gertie had red hair, blue eyes, and very fair skin. She had been dead many years now, but I remember her vividly, because she was a throwback in physical appearance to a certain 20th century type which I had found very rare among modern Americans, also because the four of us were engaged one day in a discussion of this very point when I obtained my first experience of a Han air raid. We were sitting high on the side of a hill, overlooking the valley that teemed with human activity, invisible beneath its blanket of foliage. The other three, who knew of the Irish but vaguely and indefinitely as a race on the other side of the globe, which, like ourselves, had succeeded in maintaining a precarious and fugitive existence in rebellion against the Mongolian domination of the earth, were listening with interest to my theory that Gertie's ancestors of several hundred years ago must have been Irish. I explained that Gertie was an Irish type, evidently a throwback, and that her surname might well have been McMahon, or McMahon, and still more anciently, MacMathgamahain. They were interested, too, in my surmise that Gertie was the same name as that which had been Gertie, or Gertrude, in the 20th century. In the middle of our discussion, we were startled by an alarm rocket that burst high in the air, far to the north, spreading a pile of red smoke that drifted like a cloud. It was followed by others at scattered points in the northern sky. A Han raid! Bill exclaimed in amazement. The first in seven years! Maybe it's just one of their ships off its course, I ventured. No, said Wilma in some agitation. That would be green rockets. Red means only one thing, Tony. They're sweeping the countryside with their disc beams. Can you see anything, Bill? We had better get under cover. Gertie said nervously. The four of us are bunched here in the open. For all we know, they may be twelve miles up, out of sight, yet looking at us with a projecto. Bill had been sweeping the horizon hastily with his glass, but apparently saw nothing. We had better scatter at that, he said finally. It's orders, you know. See? He pointed to the valley. Here and there a tiny human figure shot for a moment above the foliage of the treetops. That's bad, Wilma commented, as she counted the jumpers. No less than fifteen people visible, and all clearly radiating from a central point. Do they want to give away our location? The standard orders covering air raids were that the population was to scatter individually. There should be no grouping, or even pairing, in view of the destructiveness of the disintegrator rays. Experience of generations had proved that if this were done and everybody remained hidden beneath the tree screens, the Huns would have to sweep mile after mile of territory, 
foot by foot, to catch more than a small percentage of the community. Gertie, however, refused to leave Bill, and Wilma developed an equal obstinacy against quitting my side. I was inexperienced at this sort of thing, she explained, quite ignoring the fact that she was too. She was only 13 or 14 years old at the time of the last air raid. However, since I could not argue her out of it, we leapt together about a quarter of a mile to the right, while Bill and Gertie disappeared down the hillside among the trees. Wilma and I both wanted a point of vantage from which we might overlook the valley and the sky to the north, and we found it near the top of the ridge, where, protected from visibility by thick branches, we could look out between the tree trunks and get a good view of the valley. No more rockets went up, except for a few of those warning red clouds drifting lazily in the blue sky, there was no visible indication of man's past or present existence anywhere in the sky or on the ground. Then Wilma gripped my arm and pointed. I saw it, away off in the distance, looking like a phantom dirigible airship, in its coat of low-visibility paint, a bare specter. Seven thousand feet up, Wilma whispered, crouching close to me. Watch. The ship was about the same shape as the great dirigibles of the 20th century that I had seen, but without the suspended control car, engines, propellers, rudders, or elevating planes. As it loomed rapidly nearer, I saw that it was wider and somewhat flatter than I had supposed. Now I could see the repeller rays that held the ship aloft like search beams faintly visible in the bright daylight and still faintly visible to the human eye at night. Actually, I had been informed by my instructors there were two rays, the visible one generated by the ship's apparatus and directed towards the ground as a beam of carrier impulses, and the true repeller ray, the complement of the other in one sense, induced by the action of the carrier and reacting in a concentrating upward direction from the mass of the earth, becoming successfully electronic, atomic, and finally molecular in its nature according to the various ratios of distance between earth mass and carrier source, until, in the last analysis, the ship itself actually is supported on an upward-rushing column of air, much like a ball continuously supported on a fountain jet. The raider neared with incredible speed. Its rays were both slanted astern at a sharp angle so that it slid forward with tremendous momentum. The ship was operating two disintegrator rays, though only in a casual intermittent fashion, but whenever they flashed downward with blinding brilliancy, forest, rocks, and ground melted instantaneously into nothing where they played upon them. When later I inspected the scars left by these rays, I found them some five feet deep and thirty feet wide, the exposed surfaces being lava-like in texture, but of a pale, iridescent, greenish hue. No systematic use of the rays was made by the ship, however, until it reached a point over the center of the valley, the center of the community's activities. There it came to a sudden stop by shooting its repeller beam sharply forward and easing them back gradually to the vertical, holding the ship floating and motionless. Then the work of destruction began systematically. Back and forth, 
traveled the destroying rays, plowing parallel furrows from hillside to hillside. We gasped in dismay, Wilma and I, as time after time we saw it plow through sections where we knew camps or plants were located. This is awful, she moaned, a terrified question in her eyes. How could they know the location so exactly, Tony? Did you see? They were never in doubt. They stalled at a predetermined spot, and, and it was exactly the right spot. We did not talk of what might happen if the rays were turned in our direction. We both knew we would simply disintegrate in a split second into mere scattered electronic vibrations. Strangely enough, it was this self-reliant girl of the 25th century who clung to me, a relatively primitive man of the 20th, less familiar than she with the thought of this terrifying possibility, for moral support. We knew that many of our companions must have been whisked into absolute non-existence before our eyes in these few moments. The whole thing paralyzed us into mental and physical immobility for I do not know how long. It couldn't have been long, however, for the rays had not plowed more than 30 of their 20-foot furrows or so across the valley when I regained control of myself and brought Wilma to herself by shaking her roughly. How far will this rocket gun shoot, Wilma? I demanded, drawing my pistol. It depends on your rocket, Tony. It will take even the longest-range rocket, but you could shoot more accurately from a longer tube. But why? You couldn't penetrate the shell of that ship with rocket force, even if you could reach it. I fumbled clumsily with my rocket pouch, for I was excited. I had an idea I wanted to try. A hunch, I called it, forgetting that Wilma could not understand my ancient slang. But finally, with her help, I selected the longest-range explosive rocket in my pouch and fitted it to my pistol. It won't carry 7,000 feet, Tony, Wilma objected but I took aim carefully. It was another thought that I had in mind. The supporting repeller ray, I had been told, became molecular in character at what was called a logarithmic level of five. Below that it was purely electronic flow, or pulsation between the source of the carrier and the average mass of the Earth. Below that level, if I could project my explosive bullet into this stream where it began to carry material substance upward, might it not rise with the air column? gathering speed and hitting the ship with enough impact to carry it through the shell? It was worth a try, anyhow. Wilma became greatly excited, too, when she grasped the nature of my inspiration. Feverishly, I looked around for some formation of branches against which I could rest the pistol, for I had to aim most carefully. At last I found one. Patiently I sighted on the hulk of the ship far above us, aiming at the far side of it, as such an angle as would, so far as I could estimate, bring my bullet path through the forward repeller beam. At last the sights wavered across the point I sought, and I pressed the button gently. For a moment we gazed breathlessly. Suddenly the ship swung, bowed down, as on a pivot, and swayed like a pendulum. Wilma screamed in her excitement. Oh, Tony, you hit it, you hit it. Do it again. Bring it down. We had only one more rocket of extreme range between us, and we dropped it three times in our excitement in inserting it in my gun. Then, 
forcing myself to be calm by sheer willpower while Wilma stuffed her little fist into her mouth to keep from shrieking, I sighted carefully again and fired. In a flash, Wilma had grasped the hope that this discovery of mine might lead to the end of the Han domination. The elapsed time of the rocket's invisible flight seemed an age. Then we saw the ship falling. It seemed to plunge lazily, but actually it fell with terrific acceleration, turning end over end, its disintegrator rays out of control, describing vast wild arcs, and once cutting a gash through the forest less than 200 feet from where we stood. The crash with which the heavy craft hit the ground reverberated from the hills. The momentum of 18 or 20,000 tons in a sheer drop of 7,000 feet. A mangled mass of metal. It buried itself in the ground. With poetic justice, in the middle of the smoking semi-molten field of destruction, it had been so deliberately plowing. The silence, the vacuity of the landscape was oppressive as the last echoes died away. Then... Far down the hillside, a single figure leaped exultantly above the foliage screen, and in the distance, another, and another. In a moment, the sky was punctured by signal rockets. One after another, the little red puffs became drifting clouds. Scatter, scatter, Wilma exclaimed. In half an hour, there'll be an entire Han fleet here from New York, and another from Bafflo. They'll get this instantly on their recordographs and location finders. They'll blast the whole valley and country for miles beyond. Come, Tony. There's no time for the gang to rally. See the signals? We've got to jump. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Over the ridge we went, in long leaps towards the east, the county of the Delawares. From time to time, signal rockets puffed the sky. Most of them were the red warnings, the scatter signals. But from certain of the others, which Wilma identified as Wyoming rockets, she gathered that whoever was in command, we did not know whether the boss was alive or not, was ordering an ultimate rally towards the south. And so we changed our course. It was a great pity, I thought, that the clan had not been equipped throughout its membership with ultraphones. But Wilma explained to me that not enough of these had been built for distribution as yet, although general distribution had been contemplated within a couple of months. We traveled far before nightfall overtook us, trying only to put as much distance as possible between ourselves and the valley. When gathering dusk made jumping too dangerous, we sought a comfortable spot beneath the trees and consumed part of our emergency rations. It was the first time I had tasted this stuff a highly nutritive synthetic substance called concentro, which was, however, a bit bitter and unpalatable. But as only a mouthful or so was needed, it did not matter. Neither of us had a cloak, but we were both thoroughly tired and happy, so we curled up together for warmth, I remember Wilma making some sleepy remark about our mating as she cuddled up, as though the matter were all settled 
and my surprise at my own instant acceptance of the idea, for I had not consciously thought of her that way before. But we both fell asleep at once. In the morning, we found little time for lovemaking. The practical problem facing us was too great. Wilma felt that the Wyoming plan must be to rally in the Susquehanna territory, but she had her doubts about the wisdom of this plan. In my elation at my success in bringing down the Han ship and my newly found interest in my charming companion, who was, from my viewpoint, of another century, at once more highly civilized and yet more primitive than myself, I had forgotten the ominous fact that the Han ship I had destroyed must have known the exact location of the Wyoming works. This meant, to Wilma's logical mind, either that the Hans had perfected new instruments as yet unknown to us, or that somewhere, among the Wyomings, or some other nearby gang, there were traitors so degraded as to commit that unthinkable act of trafficking in information with the Hans. In either contingency, she argued, other Han raids would follow. And since the Susquehannas had a highly developed organization and more than usually productive plants, the next raid might be expected to strike them. But at any rate, it was clearly our business to get in touch with the other fugitives as quickly as possible. So in spite of muscles that were sore from excessive leaping of the day before, we continued on our way. We traveled for only a couple of hours when we saw a multicolored rocket in the sky some ten miles ahead of us. Bear to the left, Tony, Wilma said, and listen for the whistle. Why? I asked. Haven't they given you the rocket code yet? She replied. That's what the green followed by yellow and purple means. To concentrate five miles east of the rocket position. You know, the rocket position itself might draw a play of disintegrator beams. It did not take us long to reach the neighborhood of the indicated rallying, though we were now traveling beneath the trees, with but an occasional leap to a top branch to see if any more rocket smoke was floating above, and soon we heard a distant whistle. We found about half the gang already there, in a spot where the trees met high above a little stream. The big boss and raid bosses were busy reorganizing the remnants. We reported to Boss Hart at once. He was silent, but interested, when he heard our story. You two stick close to me, he said, adding grimly. I'm going back to the valley at once with a hundred picked men, and I'll need you. End of chapter four, recorded by Malcolm Cameron.